Once again, good to have you with us. Uh, that'll be the last time you'll see that. This is the finale. This is it, end of the teaching series. Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts 28. It's the last chapter of the book of Acts. Oh, by the way, no prayer tonight. Uh, that, that was one of the other announcements, so no prayer tonight. You're on your own. Okay. Um, today, this, uh, this weekend's message is titled, Hell Won't Prevail. So we've been working our way through this book of Acts, and uh, in essence, it's about a small group of people who, you've heard me say this throughout, so it's important for me to reiterate this this morning. It's a group of people who, who didn't just see the resurrected Lord and Savior, they were seized by Him. Do you understand what I'm saying when I say that? They just didn't get a grasp on the theological truths and the implications of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it got a grasp on their life, and it so revolutionized their life. They were never the same. If you encounter the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you will never be the same. You are no longer suited for a normal life. You will want to tell the world about his grace, glory, and goodness. It's kind of the normal response of those that, uh, that encounter him. And that's what the whole book of Acts is about. It's about a group of people who uh, encountered Christ, and, and it just grew from there, and it continues on to this day. And so as we wrap this up, that's, that's really the thesis statement. It's, it's what the book of Acts is all about. And uh, what's interesting about this is that if Luke had ended Acts at chapter 20, we would have had the false impression that if you serve God, he will give you victory after victory. Instead, from chapters 21 to 28, as we have already studied through, as we hit chapter 28, we have imprisonment, threatened loss of life, trials, false accusations, storm, and shipwreck. And as we come to the end of the story, we find that Paul is still in prison. That's the end of the book. Here's what you need to know. You have three enemies, but I want to talk about one. And he, our adversary... The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've got a target on you. If he can't get you to go to hell, he will bring hell to you. He will try to bring as much hell into your life that you are off your game when it comes to following Jesus that you, you can't come even close to living for his glory. You are so distracted by dealing with all the issues and the problems of life. But Jesus said this in John 10.10, 10, theme verse here at Desert Rees, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. So he invades our pathetic plight with his presence, his power, his peace, so that we can move beyond that. In fact, he told his disciples, there's an occasion there in the book of Matthew the gospel according to Matthew, when he gathers up his disciples and he asks them, who do people say I am? And then they go through this whole list of, of statements and uh, names and titles which are not consistent with who he really is and that's very common today. A lot of people have misconceptions about who Jesus is. And then he turned to his disciples and he said, but who do you say I am? And this is where Peter says something that's unbelievably profound. And, he, and Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus said to him, response to him saying, Peter, you didn't come up with that on your own. You're not smart enough. I mean, in essence, that's what he's saying. A flesh and blood, you know, you didn't come up with that through flesh and blood, but it's my father that revealed that to you. 
And then he goes on, he says, Peter, small rock, upon this larger rock, your confession of faith in me, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. No matter how dark and depressing it gets, my, my light, my grace, my goodness will, will push it out, is greater. The gates of hell will not prevail. In fact, he even goes on in that, and when you read that in the 16th chapter of Matthew, he says, in fact, I'm giving you these keys of the kingdom. Whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. Almost to give us this sense of not only will he bring freedom to our lives, but he's called us to go out and proclaim the gospel to set the captives free all around us. Thus, the book of Acts. And so, I believe because Jesus said hell won't prevail, whatever the capacity for evil and human suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing and wholeness. And I'm completely convinced that the gospel of Jesus Christ through the ministry of the church is the hope of the world. Just as light dispels darkness, we came in here this morning. It was dark in here, so what do we do to get rid of the darkness? Curse the darkness? No, we turned on the light. Light dispels darkness. Light dispels darkness. And just as... Light dispels darkness, so the church followers of Christ are to bring love where there's hate, joy, where there's despair, peace, where there's panic, because hell won't prevail. That's what God's called us to do. And so the more you are seized by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the more your life is not only set free, but then you become a vehicle, a facilitator of freedom in other people's lives. Now... What I'm talking about here today, and as we wrap up the teaching through the book of Acts, we're really talking about, so if the gates of hell won't prevail, then we're talking about how to finish strong. How do you finish strong? How can we finish strong? Because I believe that Paul, though he's in prison, he still finishes pretty strong. And we're going to learn some really great principles here. And I think it's important to understand that it's, and you've heard this statement before, it's not how you start the race, but it's how you, how you finish it that matters the most. And I've seen a lot of people start the race, the Christian race, with Boy, they're just on fire only for them to, wow, go by the wayside, crash and burn. And I, I believe that's inconsistent with the gospel and who Christ is and what he has done for us. So we want to learn how to finish strong. Maybe kind of like how the Cardinals will finish strong, huh? Any, any Cardinal fans in the house? Yeah, so hey, check this out. So they win their first game, they lose their next six games after that and then the last uh six they've won five out of six games so all they need to do is win the next three and a few other teams lose yeah and they can make it into the playoffs when hell freezes over (laughs) and they are kind of finishing strong so let's just hope that they finish strong but that's how we should do in the christian life we should be finishing finishing strong it's always been troubling when I look back and I, and I see a lot of Christians' lives parallel the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and when they were set free from Egyptian bondage, which, which is a picture in the 10th chapter of Second, uh, 1 Corinthians tells us that those are parallels to our own personal Christian life. But when they were set free from Egyptian bondage, as we are set free from our own bondage of the flesh, uh, this world and Satan, and then we, we, as they went through the Red Sea, that represents our being baptized, making that public declaration. And so there's all these different parallels. But what's, what saddens me when you study that story is that it only should have taken them about 14 days to go into the promised land, but they ended up wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And there was a whole generation that died off before that next generation went, went into the promised land. 
So here's what I'm saying. I don't think that God has called us to wander around in the, in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. I think that there is a promised land experience. When he says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. I think that he's inviting us into a promised land kind of experience. No matter how dark the days may get. That in the midst of that, we can still experience his presence, peace, and power that exceeds all that. Because Jesus said, the gates of hell won't prevail. So my question for you is that you want to finish strong? I do. In fact, I'm convinced, though outwardly my body is, is kind of, what does it say? It says it's, it's wasting away. That's what he says in the fourth chapter of, of 2 Corinthians. But inwardly, we are being renewed day after day. So I guess my question would be, the longer you walk with Christ and walk out the implications of who Jesus is, are you getting stronger? You should be. Your heart should be getting bigger for him and for those around you. That's where we're headed with the study this morning. So how can we finish strong? Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Let's once again go before the throne of grace, receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God, we are desperate for you. We need you. We so easily get distracted. There's so many things that the enemy will try to throw into our lives to distract us, to to get us out of our game and living our lives fully for you. And so, God, let us make those course corrections this morning. Let us live a life that is consistently making those course corrections. God, we want to live our lives fully devoted to you. We want to learn how to finish strong. So teach us through Paul's example here in Acts 28. May we run hard and finish strong for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at, uh, we'll begin our reading. We'll take a section at a time. So how to finish strong. Three things we're looking at. You need to keep a godly perspective. Trust God's providence. And then make God your greatest passion. We've split it up in three sections here, what we're going to be reading. So let's look at the first six verses. And that talks about keep a godly perspective. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. By the way, Malta means refuge, importance. So they had the shipwreck, and they find their way, uh, they find their, their place is on this island Malta. By the way, uh, the Apostle Paul, if you've been with us, the Apostle Paul is, is going to be on trial in Rome. He's headed for Rome. And there's a lot of false accusations made about him. And so they were on this ship, ship crashed, and now they're on this island. And then verse 2, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled the fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, just when you thought everything was great, we made it, we survived. Oh my goodness, what happens? A viper came out, and because of the heat... And fastened on his hand. How many here just totally despise uh, snakes? You just don't like snakes. Okay. Anybody like snakes? I like snakes. Oh, that's so demonic. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. That's just that's a joke. No. Uh, somebody did this to me a number of years ago. We were over at uh, 17th Avenue and Bell Road. Um, we used to have these lights in there, and I would climb up this like. 16 foot ladder because the lights would go out all the time so before the service I'd climb up this ladder and change the lights and somebody knew that I would that was part of my job or responsibility or I took it on myself to do that and somebody put a plastic snake on the on the cord that was going down and uh, I, I remember climbing up there getting ready to change that I looked up and there was a snake looking right at me of course it was plastic but I, I wet my pants and uh, <laughs> it just freaked me out and then when I thought I thought wait a minute 
There's not, how could a snake be up here? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But that first initial, just like, whoop, okay. Nancy, would you bring me a new pair of pants? It's like, oh my goodness, it just freaked me out. I'm not really fond of snakes. And so this is certainly, you know, Paul, Paul, gets, Paul gets bit. I mean, just when you think, you know, everything's going to go good, guess what? A snake comes out of viper. Came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Notice this, now, and it's interesting to see how the people respond. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, it's pretty descriptive there, it's just kind of like hanging on his hand. <laughs> They said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, so this is Paul, he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said, that he was a god. <laughs> I mean, they go from demonizing this guy to then now deifying him. Woo, he's a god. First they think he's, oh, you're wicked and evil. Oh, you're a god. Woo-hoo-hoo. Talk about fickled. Talk about so much like us. That's how we are oftentimes. We'll stop the reading of God's word there. We'll continue on in a, in a bit. So let me give you some fill in the blanks here. Let's walk through the first section. Keep a godly perspective. If you're going to finish strong... The gates of hell won't prevail. How can I finish strong? And in the reality of that, I need to keep a godly perspective. And this is how I do that. After the storm, make sure you spend time on your own Malta. The, the fill in the blank there is refuge. That's what the word means. This is what we see in Jesus' life. Often it says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Mark one thirty-five. In fact, that was one of the busiest ministry days he had ever had. He got up early the next morning and spent some time in prayer. So what it's telling us here is that we're gonna, if we're going to maintain a godly perspective, we need some R&R. We need time to heal. We need to learn how to grieve. We need to learn how to forgive. We need to process. We need to not allow ourselves to get too hungry, too angry, too lonely, too tired. We need to regularly uh, divert daily, withdraw weekly, abandon annually. We need those times where we're refueling ourselves. We've got, I know that we're all busy, but we've got to stop chopping wood long enough to sharpen the axe we've got to slow the pace down so that we can refuel we've got to beware of the the snakes the things that can keep us from recovery certainly he still had the wounds where the snake had bitten him anybody here ever been bitten by a snake did it hurt that's a dumb question isn't it yeah did you have the wounds there for a little while yeah it took a while to recover didn't it well was it poisonous no, okay, that's good. Eric, was that you? Did you? Yeah. You've, been, you've been bit? Yeah, that's interesting. Wow. You want to get bit again? Okay. <laughs> Just wondering. So it took a while to recover from that. It took a little while. Without a continual refilling of your soul's tank with the glory and the love of God, you will be easily beat by life. So let me ask you, are there times in your life when you just set back and you process and you, you evaluate, you look at your life, you're, you're pacing yourself, you, you've got margin, and you're doing those things? How many have ever seen the movie <laughs> The Shining? The Shining. Um, this is a messed up congregation. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I watched it too. 
I'm just having fun with you this morning. But uh, The Shining movie, the, the movie is an interesting movie. It's about this guy, Jack Nicholson, who's a writer who's kind of sequestered. He's up in a, in a mountain, you know, where it's, uh, he can't get off this, out of this resort. He's up there to write a book. He's going to take care of this resort. But while he's there, bad things happen. And, uh, and finally, his wife knows that he's been working on this book for a while. And finally, she goes into the, his office or someplace where he's been working and, and looks at this like 300 pages of what he's been typing. He's been typing one line over and over again, over about 300 pages. You guys remember that? Remember what the line is? All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And then you got that scene where he comes through. He kind of breaks through that. I guess it's like a, like a bathroom scene or something. It's a very classic scene. Sticks his head in there with that axe and goes, here's Johnny. Yeah. Why did I share that? I really don't know why. But uh, <laughs> I just thought I would share that with you. I just thought it was an interesting movie. Actually, here's why. That's you. That's you. All work and no, no play makes you, makes you like that. I mean, that's kind of an extreme. But yeah, you, you're, your cheese will slide off your cracker. <laughs> I mean, your elevator's not going to go all the way to the top floor. I if you push yourself to the limit like it, you're not made to do that. I believe this is part of God's providential care of Paul saying, hey, I'm going to let you rest. They're going to stay there for about three months. And you're going to see how these people take care of them. I think it's part of God's care of him just saying, hey, I'm going to get you recharged because you're going to go to Rome and you're, I'm going to use you powerfully, but you need some time to recharge. You just got the heck beat out of you through this shipwreck and I was with you the whole time, but you need a time of R and R. By the way, another thing that you need to do also here is during times of recovery, you must evaluate how you evaluate the events of life. So what you have to do is you have to sit back and say, okay, how am I looking at all of this? How is, how is this affecting me? There's a great uh, cross-references here, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. It says this, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So he's saying, hey, we're in a war. Life is not a playground, it's a battleground. And we're in a war, and our weapons are not flesh. They're not what you might think. They're, they're supernatural, they're spiritual. And he talked about these strongholds, and we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So it works something like this. I mean, Paul had to have maybe battled this a bit, but he was so strong in the Lord, he just was able to move it out and move on. But here he is resting, and all of a sudden he gets bit by a snake. And it's so easy for us to start thinking, where, where are you, God, in all of this? What's going on? Immediately we're bombarded with all these thoughts. If only I had done this, or God, why this? Or what's going over here, God? And so what we have to do is we have to chase those thoughts down and say, wait a minute. Wait a minute, what does the Bible say? How am I supposed to evaluate this? Because it's important to realize that it's not what happens to us. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's not what happens to us, but what happens in us that matters most. And it's how I evaluate the events of my life. Think about this. It's how you evaluate the events of your life that determines how you think, feel, and how you will respond to those events. It's not the events that makes you who you are. It's how you're evaluating those events. So when you're taking a little R&R, you need to look back and say, hey, how am I looking at all this? Do I really have a biblical perspective in this? Do I really know that God is for me and not against me? Am I believing what the Bible says? And that's, that's why it's important to do that. Because in the long run, in life, you're going to take a lot of hits. And with those hits come hurts. 
And if you don't deal with those hurts, what does that become? Anybody? It becomes a bitterness within you. And you become angry at God. You become angry at those that have hurt you in some way or another. You can even become angry at yourself. And uh, you've heard the statement before, hurt people hurt people. But I believe healed people heal people. Free people, free people. We're following the story of Paul. He is so free that he goes from here. We're going to read in a minute. He's, he's praying for folks. He's ministering to them. And you're thinking, you just came off of a shipwreck. You got bit by a snake. Dude, what is happening? He just, I think he had a godly perspective. He knew that God was for him. I mean, he just, he was able to, he's going to finish hard to the, to the end. He's going to finish strong. There's a interesting, uh, let me read this. Uh, this was from uh, Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, New York City. After 9-11, there were questions asked. People said, and, and you heard some noted Christians that even said this, is this a judgment from God on our country? And the reason I bring this up is because immediately when you looked at how these people were evaluating what had happened to Paul, the first thing they did was that they demonized him. And then all of a sudden they deify him. And so there's that tendency when you go through suffering is to really have superficial, you know, uh, responses. And, and so what we're wanting to do here, and I talked about it last week, is stay away from shallow answers to life's complex issues. Remember last week we said that sometimes immediately when someone go through, goes through a bad time, sometimes Christians or religious people will say, are you living right? It's because you're not living right. That's why you're going through that. That snake bit you because you're not living right. Well, wait a minute. Paul's living pretty right, okay? That's not it. That's pretty superficial and shallow to do that. And, and nor should you go the other extreme. We talked about that as well. Well, there isn't a God. You just do whatever you want to do. Well, that's not true either. There is a divine order. It's called sowing and reaping, and, and you do reap what you sow, although it's a bit broken because we live in a fallen world, but you still want to live by that because it's a great way to live. So those become shallow answers in how we respond because it's much more multidimensional. There's many more nuances. But listen to what Keller said in response to this because people were saying at that time, well, oh, that's God's judgment. And this is what he said. He says, I don't think we can infer from prosperity that God is pleased with us, nor can we know from disaster that he is displeased with us. In Romans 1.18, Paul hints that the worst punishment may be to get the happy life you want. If you look at Romans Chapter 1, that's what he says. He got, at some point, God just turns you over to your own little happy life. Just turns you over to your wicked and evil desires. That's what he's saying there. So Paul hints that the worst punishment may be to get the happy life you want. That way you never wake up to your pride, self-righteousness, or need for him. On the other hand, Luke 21, 16 through 19 is a remarkable assertion that God's loving protection to his people does not mean exemption for suffering. Jesus says, they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. He's quoting those verses, and then he goes on in his commentary here, his comments. He says, this is startling to us. We would think that not a hair of, our, of, of your head will perish must mean that we can't be attacked and killed, but that is not so. Jesus is saying that God exercises the most detailed and loving control of our lives, not a hair, and that in the broad scope of things, every event works out for our good and his glory, Romans 8, 28. But our life plan may still include terrible tragedy, just as did Jesus' life plan. Why should servants be above their master? What do we learn from all of this? We learn that we cannot be sure that disasters imply divine judgment, nor that prosperity implies divine approval. So, 
How can we know whether God is displeased with America or not? The only way to know that for sure is to consult the scriptures and its standards. He's saying go back to the Bible. Go back to the Bible. Don't be so superficial to look at the circumstances of life as as we often do and try to judge what God is up to, but go back to what God's word ultimately says. And so what we've got to do is that we've got to be careful because sometimes success is the passive wrath of God. It can be the passive wrath of God. He just turns people over to their wicked ways. And then sometimes suffering is the severe mercy of God. Some of the best things that we could go through sometimes is through suffering because I'll tell you what, some of you have been awakened to the reality of the beauty and the glory of Jesus unlike you've ever before. And not only that, you've been able to minister to others because of that unbelievably. I've seen that. And it's been the result of difficulty and suffering. Here's the next point on your notes. You know you're making progress when you can shake off those things that would otherwise poison your life. I don't think it, you know, he shook the snake off into the fire, but he still had the wounds. It took him a while to get, and so I'm not saying that you can shake off these things that quickly. It does take some time. Hebrews 12, 15, I know this, and I've, I've watched people as they get older in their life and acquire more and more hurts. I've seen people not get better. I've seen them get more and more bitter. And if you are getting not better in Christ and, and really beginning to understand more clearly the beauty and the glory of who Christ is, but you're becoming more bitter over time, more cynical and calloused and hardened, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with your walk with Jesus. There's something wrong with your perspective. That's why you need a godly, a godly perspective. Hebrews twelve fifteen it says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God. So that's what happens when we become bitter. We miss the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. What do I mean by shaking off those things that would otherwise poison your life? You need to shake off the guilt and shame of the sins that you've committed. Christ has died on the cross for your guilt and shame, but you hang on to that stuff. And you let it haunt you and harass you. It's like a poisonous snake that sucks the life out of you. But you also need to shake off the hurts, habits, and hang-ups that you've acquired through the, through the people and how they've related to you. How you've been treated, how you've been raised, all these different issues and even the abuses in your life. You've got to work through those. That's why if you want a godly perspective, if you're going to finish strong, you need to keep a godly perspective. After the storm, you need some R&R. You need to evaluate how you evaluate and then you need to learn how to get rid of those things and take them to the cross and allow him to bring healing to you. I believe that's what Paul is experiencing here. One of my favorite verses, you've probably heard me a number of years uh, throughout this year mentioned a couple different times. I keep coming back to it, but it's Genesis 50, 20. You guys know what I'm talking about? Having a 50-20 perspective? Genesis 50-20? That's, that's Joseph. And it's an amazing story because here his brothers had abused him. And later on in his life, he goes from, the, from prison, from the pit to prison to the palace. And now he's in charge and command. He comes face to face with his perpetrators. And this is what it says in 50-20. He says, you intended to harm me. I mean, he's looking at his perpetrators. You intended to harm me. I accept the fact. That was pretty wicked of you guys. So he's not in denial. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It's interesting if you study his life and you go back a few chapters in the book of Genesis, the healing actually started before this. In Genesis 41, verse 51, remember when he had his first child, he's he's elevated to this place of prominence, kind of second in command of all of Egypt. He has his first son. His first son, he names him Manasseh. And Manasseh means this, for God has made me forget all my hardship. 
Isn't that interesting? Now, I don't believe that what he's talking about, that he forgot what his brothers had done, because later on he brings it up. He says, hey, you guys intended to harm me, so it's not forgetting. But, he, but you know you're beginning to be healed when you quit reliving it. You can recall it, but you don't relive it anymore. That that person's name or that event doesn't stir up that same emotion. That emotion grabs a hold of your life, but you're able to kind of let that go. And not only that, you begin to see God's grace working in that. And it gives you a great appreciation for how God has rescued from that, rescued you from that and brought healing. His second child's name was Ephraim. And Ephraim means this, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Isn't that amazing? So here's, here's the, uh, these terrible events that happened in his life, but he was beginning to have this godly perspective and begin him to say, hey, God, you can take this negative and work it for my good and your glory. In fact, God, you are using me now. And, and as he looked into the perpetrator's eyes, he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And that's what God would say to you this morning. To the difficulty, the pain, the suffering, it's in his hands. He's working, begin to develop a godly perspective, and God is going to use that for the saving of many lives. He's going to use your life to save other lives so that people can see the grace and the glory in your life. Let's continue reading verses 7 through 16 as we continue on in this story. So back to our text. So here they're on this island, Malta. Now, in the neighborhood of the place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. So, I mean, Paul's just healing and, you know, praying and people were being healed and seeing all kinds of things happen. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So they're unbelievably hospitable, very generous. And so we see in verse 11, after three months, so they were there for three months, kind of this time of R&R. People are taking care of them. They're praying and ministering to people. That is, Paul is. And after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as figurehead, putting in at Syracuse. We, uh, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived in Regium. And after one day... A south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petioli. Petioli. There we found brothers, so we found other Christians, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. Providence of God. They made it, they made it to Rome. That's where God said he was going to take them there. Uh, seems almost uneventful because, you know, God is working out his will for their life. But more importantly, you can see how he has this interaction. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apias and the three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. So they just kind of rallied around him and supported him, the Christians there. And, uh, and so when they came, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. So here Paul is under house arrest. And Paul talks about this in, in his letter to the church in Philippi. And he's, he's chained to a praetorian guard 24-7. Think about that. And the praetorian guard is changed every four hours. So that's kind of what's going on. So he's under this house arrest. That's, that's uh, what's going on here. Let's take you to the next point on your notes. So if we're going to finish strong, we've got to keep a godly perspective, but we also have to trust God's providence. We've got to trust God's providence. Here's what God's providence and uh, what it has to do 
with our life. Uh, next point on your notes, three fill in the blanks here. God is perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, and completely sovereign. So think about that as it relates to your, the, your own, the events of your own life. God is perfect in love. He's perfect in love. He's infinite in wisdom, completely sovereign. Romans 8, 28. That's a verse that you probably should have memorized. Okay? For we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Do you understand the implications of that? Are you living in the reality of those? If you are, it'll make all the difference in your life. You'll live them knowing that God is perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, and completely sovereign. Next point in your notes. God makes sense even when he doesn't make sense. God makes sense even when he doesn't make sense. Because Paul didn't know that, you know, Paul had been praying for many years to go to Rome. He didn't know he was going to go to Rome as a prisoner. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it does. In God's economy. Just because you can't, you can't see a good reason why God might allow something to happen, it doesn't mean there can't be one. In fact, there are probably a million. Most of what God is up to can't be seen on this side of eternity. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we live by faith, not by sight. So now think about this. Paul's mission is to reach the Gentile world in general, but specifically he wanted to go to Rome because Rome was the center of the world. He wanted to infiltrate its power structure. So he's, been, he's praying, that's his desire. God put it in his heart. So what does God do? How does God answer? God's answer, how about I chain them to you? That's Paul's answer. Well, that doesn't make sense. Yes, it does in God's economy because when you read the story out, Praetorian Guard, they were the most strategic group Personally chosen by Caesar, highest trained and paid, they retired after 12 years to become leaders in Rome. So here's what God does strategically. God puts Paul in Rome. Nero pays the bill, chains a future leader of Rome to Paul every four hours. Paul had a captive audience. Oh my goodness. And later on, Paul in Philippians 4.22, as he's writing this letter, listen to what he says. He kind of slips this in. It's kind of interesting when you read through this. Uh, we saw it as we were reading through, uh, when we went through Philippians. Listen to what, he, what it says here. He says, greet every saint in Christ. So he's ending the book here to the church in Philippi. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. What does that mean? Praetorian guards were coming to faith in Jesus. There were people in Caesar's household who were coming to faith in Jesus Christ because God strategically placed Paul right where he, he was. Isn't that amazing? God makes sense when he, even when he doesn't make sense. Here's the next point on your notes. God's power working in you, for you, in you for you, and through you is greater than anything you will ever face. And you see that in Paul's life. So God's power working in you for you and through you is greater than anything you will ever face. Here's a couple of my favorite verses. I've got a list of about a billion verses that are my favorite verses, so here's just a couple on that list. Uh, you've heard these verses before. Here's the definition of grace, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 and 9, 8. I like how they kind of mirror each other. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 goes like this. It defines grace for us. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Paul's in prison, and yet he's wealthier than every man alive that's free because he knows Christ. He understands that. He has the richness of the very presence and power of God in his life. It's amazing. 
Second Corinthians, and so what, is that? what are the implications? How does that work in my life? Well, Second Corinthians 9, 8, this is how it works. It's wonderful. God is able, listen to me, no matter what you're facing, everybody look up here just for a minute. Whatever, what are you facing? What are you struggling with? God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He uses that word abound a couple times in that verse. The word abound, literally, if you look it up in the Greek, it means a, a river overflow, overflowing its, its banks, God will so overflow your life with his grace. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. This goes back to this point. God's power working in you, for you, and through you is greater than anything you will ever face. That's awesome. Oh, my goodness. I just want to like, jump to the ceiling when I hear that. I mean, I'm thinking, that, that's for real. I've experienced that in my own life. No matter what you're facing, his grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. That is amazing. His grace is his empowering presence in your life, enabling you to be what he wants you to be, to do what he wants you to do. He will never leave you or forsake you. We see that happening in Paul's life. That is amazing. That is amazing. That's the emotional wealth that we so desperately need. Emotional wealth is knowing that you are completely accepted, totally secure, infinitely significant to the only one in the universe that matters. Oh, well, so what? The world snubs you. Oh, well, they rejected you. You have the king of glory who gave his life for you. Oh, my goodness. Let that sink deep into your heart. You will be unshakable and unbreakable if that's true. You will have an emotional health that will go beyond anything you've ever experienced. Emotional, emotional health, emotional wealth is being so loved by God that temptation doesn't draw you, trials don't devastate you, devastate you. Emotional wealth is being so loved by God that suffering doesn't destroy you, but develops you to be a greater display case of God's glory and grace. Okay, let's wrap this up, man. Pedal to the metal. We're going to finish this book. That's what I love about this church. You guys let us kind of study through books. We study through books of the Bible. Here it is. Let's, let's take it all the way to the end of the book right here. Verses 17 through 31. Here we go. And after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them. So here he is. He's under house arrest. He, he gathers together the local leaders, the Jews. Brothers, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the, for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge, I had no charge uh, to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. What is the hope of Israel? Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Because of the hope of, of Israel. Jesus. He's the hope of Israel. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So he's talking about Christians, it's about people who are following Jesus. So when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. So these people are flocking to Paul. 
And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed. After Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. So he begins to quote from Isaiah chapter 6. And he says, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. Stop there just for a minute. Everybody look up here. Listen, to understand the gospel, to have the gospel get a hold of your life, it's a supernatural work that's got to work in your life. You've got to go beyond just seeing Eyes in the head and ears in the head. You've got to have eyes and ears of the heart. And it's a work of God. But if you're resistant and hard-hearted in this whole process, as they are, there were those that turned away and said, ah, I don't believe that. He goes on, he says, For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Here's the last two verses. Drum roll. Here we go. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Is that it? Is that the ending of the book? The end? What happened to Paul? What happened after that? I mean, it's just kind of like, ooh, that's it. See ya, end of the book. Study some other book. Why would it end like that? Because listen, it's not about Paul. But you need to know, you can study, church history tells us that he's released from prison, goes out for a couple years, and then he's rearrested, brought back in, and then they take him outside the city and chop his head off. So he's not going to live much longer than this. But while he's back in custody in prison, he writes a very profound letter to uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy. He talks about to Timothy, hey, fight the good fight of faith. We see Paul finish strong, finish strong even in prison. Pretty powerful. But it's not, about, it's not about that. It's not about Paul. Because look at this. Take a look. Next point. Make God your greatest passion. Make God your greatest passion. So, if you're going to finish strong, you've got to keep a godly perspective. You've got to trust God's providence. And then you've got to make God your passion. Because here's the point. The story of the universe already has a star. And it's not you and me. It's not Paul. It's Jesus. This book is about Jesus. And the story continues on. That's why it stops there. It doesn't stop there. It continues on. It continues on for 2,000 years. It continues on through our lives today. Because the story's about about Jesus. And when we live in such a self-absorbed world, a self-absorbed life is empty and lonely, but a God-absorbed life is full and satisfying. Many of you have read the book by Francis Chan, uh, crazy love and he talks about it in the book and i actually heard him teach on this a number of years ago and he used this as an illustration he used the movie rocky one as an illustration it's really a phenomenal illustration it's always stayed with me how many have ever seen rocky one how many have never seen rocky one that is so un-american okay i'm just joking but in Rocky 1, there's that scene. And maybe you've not seen the movie, but you know, you're familiar with the scene where he's out there exercising and working out. And he runs up the, court, the, the stairs of the court building. 
You got the music playing in the background. He gets to the top. Oh, I got it. Oh, man, it says chills down my back just thinking about it. No, not really. But, uh, but you know, it's, but it's interesting. At the top of the stairs, there's this guy in a green jacket. And you wouldn't even know it unless I brought it to your attention. And you begin to watch it and look for this guy in a green jacket. And he says two things. He says, go, Rocky, go. Now imagine that you are this guy that, in the green jacket that says, go, Rocky, go. And you tell all your friends, they just made a movie about me. And you rent out the theater and you invite all your family and friends to the movie theater. And everybody's sitting there on the edge of their seat waiting for you to come out there. And you come out for two seconds and you say, go, Rocky, go. And they look over at you like you're an idiot, wouldn't they? When they think, you're crazy. Francis Chan goes on and he talks about, he says that many Christians are even more delusional because they think the movie of life is all about them. Listen to me. It ain't about you. I don't care what church you went to that they told you that. There's churches out there that actually teach that. It ain't about you. It's about him. And God gives you two seconds at the top of the stairs to say, go, Jesus, go. It's about you. And that's what he expects us to do. He wants us to live our lives for his glory because that's what we were created to do and that's where we'll find our greatest satisfaction. I'm telling you, you make your life about you, oh, what a miserable life you're gonna live. You're never gonna have enough because you're trying to fill a void inside of you that only God can fill. You let him fill up that void within you. You make life about him and pointing to him, it's the next point in your notes. The point of your life is to point to the beauty and the glory of the person and work of Jesus Christ. How do I do that? Well, look how Paul did it. Turn your prison cell into a pulpit that proclaims the gospel. That's what, that's what Paul is doing. Oh my goodness, look at all the people that are coming around and visiting him. And he's, he's pointing to who? Gee, he's not concerned about whether he's going to get out of prison or not. He's just pointing. To, I'm going to use this as a platform to point, to point to Jesus. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whatever you do. Now, okay, I've got to admit, I'm on the bandwagon, the Tebow bandwagon. Okay? Anybody with me? I saw a Tebow shirt in here somewhere. Anybody? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So that's that's cool. So listen to this. I don't know if you guys were watching Sunday Night Football. Some of you probably don't even watch football. And that's un-American. But uh, the Gospel Coalition had an article, Owen Strachan, and, and the title of this article was Tebow Calvin and the Hand of God in Sports. And then he goes on, he says, in this article, I'll just give you some quick excerpts from this. He says, last weekend on NBC's Sunday Night Football, telecast announcer Bob Costas spent two minutes weighing in on the most exciting and polarizing phenomenon in sports right now. The Tim Tebow Magical Fourth Quarter Show, accompanied by the Denver Broncos players and staff. Costas, one of the most eloquent and thoughtful voices in sports, suggested that Tebow's recent string of performances was was approaching, okay, we'll say it, the miraculous. Costas went on to suggest that the God that Tebow worships has no interest in influencing the outcome of games. And so this guy goes on and talks about the sovereignty of God. Let me just give you a little bit of what he said. God oversees and ordains all that comes to pass. And I agree because that's what the Bible says. This includes, as surprising as it may initially seem, football games. The outcome of every football game ever been played was planned by the all-wise, all-seeing mind of God. Nothing happens outside of his sovereign direction. Okay? The most important story here is not that Tebow and the Broncos are winning in dramatic fashion. 
Check this out. But the, the Lord seems to have worked in this man such that, though faced with unbelievable fame, major wealth, constant attention, and the classically all-American success story, Tebow seems only to want to talk about the gospel. That, my friends, is the real miracle and the work in which all of us, whether church planner, pipe fitter, and homemaker, may participate. And I believe that Tebow hasn't just seen the cross and seen Jesus. He is seized by it. That's the reason why all that other stuff, that's why he's always looking for an opportunity once again to talk about who he treasures the most, and that's Jesus. Because he knows, and I, I pray for him, I pray that he stays on track. It's so easy for all of us to get off track. That the point of your life is to point to the beauty and the glory and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here's the last, last big idea. There is no better life investment or a more exciting adventure this side of heaven than being a part of a church like DB, like Desert Breeze, that is beholding God's beauty, reflecting his glory, and redeeming people's lives for all eternity. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That's what he said. And he said this to his disciples. And the gates of hell won't prevail. So why does the book of Acts have no real ending? Because the epic story of the church building, the epic story of God building his church continues to this day. The story of the Christian church over the last 2,000 years is stunning. A handful of followers of Christ become a worldwide phenomenon of a few billion people. God is at work all over the world filling his followers with his presence to redeem and fix this broken place. That's the book of Acts. You were meant to lay your head on the pillow at night and say, you know what I did today? I teamed up with God to change the world. I can't believe I get to do this is the response of those who are building believers and reaching seekers for God's glory. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, what an amazing story, the book of Acts. You have inspired us. You have filled us with your presence and your power. And God, you have set us free. You're continuing to set us free. And God, as you continue to set us free, and may we go out of these doors and be used by you to set captives free by the proclamation of your gospel, of your good news. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us? Let's sing this song. Let's lift the roof. This song talks about, it's a new song that we learned last week, talking about the freedom that we have in Jesus. And so make this your heart prayer and cry to him. God bless you.